Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey everyone, welcome back to OMD Daily. So what happened today? Today is May 11th, 2020. And well, let's see. Well, I spent, I've been working on a new daily system where I'll spend an hour, I kind of set a timer and I spend an hour reading whatever book I'm reading and so I'm still reading The Rational Optimist by Matt Ridley so that kind of started off the morning starting off with like the morning push-ups I'm just doing whatever I can to continuously stay active especially given this COVID lockdown Um, but I'd say a good chunk of my day was actually spent reading the annual report and proxy statements for Morningstar if you're not familiar it's Morningstar is a I call it like an investment data platform company um it's if you're familiar with like bloomberg thomson reuters um you know even basic sites like yahoo finance google finance they all are kind of database companies and so morningstar kind of has the whole gambit of that they have their own online platform and there's various i'd say products on it that provide different kinds of services for individual investors, wealth managers, um, investment funds, and even credit issuers because Morningstar also owns a credit rating agency. You might have heard of Moody's and S&P and maybe even Fitch, but they have the fourth largest one called DBRS. And so they have this whole kind of gambit of businesses. So that's a company that's been on my list for a while. And the reason it got on my list to start off with is because... um, I've been kind of asking around a few investors that I respect and I think other investors who kind of share my focus on people and management as an as a core crux of the investing philosophy and Morningstar's uh, shareholder letters were recommended and Morningstar's founder Joe I think Mansueto I think that's his last name I might be completely butchering it but uh, Joe's shareholder letters were highly recommended in the past, and he's kind of, I think, seen as a pretty shareholder-friendly and unique uh, founder. So, that yeah, that's how the company kind of got on my list. And so this today was the day I decided to kind of spend a good chunk of the day kind of reading through the documents. Um, and yeah, I think there's definitely more to dig into. Uh, I think the shareholder annual meeting is actually at the end of this week so i'm hoping to tune into the webinar and see how all that progresses but yeah there's definitely a couple more reports i want to read into to get a better understanding of the company but i figured i'll kind of share kind of high level thoughts um right now i usually if i'm a little more interested i'll write up a full report on it like i've done for like previous companies like trupanion and TripAdvisor. but overall i think you know the business seems I don't want to use the word interesting, but you know the the way management calls it is that they are the original fintech company. I think that's what they said in like a 
early 2000s conference that they were part of. But um, yeah, I think there's parts of the business that I like. Parts of something that I found interesting is that they own DBRS, which is a credit rating agency. And I'm you know, generally a big fan of credit rating, credit rating companies because it's kind of like a regulatory oligopoly in a sense. Um, there really aren't that many players really allowed in the market. And it's one of those things where you don't want to just get one rating. You kind of want to get ratings from multiple players as a credit issuer. So there's always kind of, I think, rational players in the market and all the customers kind of want to be the customers all of all the credit rating, credit, credit rating agencies as well. And something else I like is that they also have their own pitch book, um, which is kind of the full database of private companies, which I find interesting because they have the whole public gambit um, of all the public company information. But there's you know other competitors like Bloomberg and Capital IQ who are what I'd consider to be much more sophisticated and are more used by the large funds that have you know the big money to pay. And Morningstar really isn't, from my experience, kind of the first choice. Um, like when I was at a fund, it was rarely the stuff that I would use. I'd always go to Capital IQ. Um, and so, but PitchBook is different. PitchBook is a whole repository of private company data. That's actually much harder to access. So I think that provides kind of added value that can work together with the suite of products that Morningstar has. So that's interesting. Something else I found interesting is just the, I guess, renewal rate on all these subscription products. I think the um, about 73, 75% of their total revenue is kind of a recurring nature revenue where it's all subscription-based. And it's all usually annual subscriptions. But I think overall on a company level, you're looking at, I think, over the last five years, the average uh, renewal rate is a hundred percent. Like there are years, I think the lowest in the last five years was a ninety-six percent renewal rate, um, and the highest was a hundred two percent renewal rate. And so when you average it out, it kind of comes up to like ninety-nine slash hundred percent, which is pretty strong. Um, and when we look at it on the five-year mark, I think it's pretty decent. I spent a lot of time today just kind of on the proxy statement because I was just kind of more curious on how the incentives are going to try get aligned because I think the part about Morningstar that kind of got me iffy was just because Joe, who is the founder, kind of took a backseat role as the executive chairman and Kunal Kapoor became the CEO in 2017. And it seems like he's been ex- executing um, pretty well. Like I think he was involved with the pitch book acquisition. He was involved or he led the DBRS acquisition. So these are kind of big changes that are happening. Um, but I think I'm still not as comfortable. Like I, I'm still trying to figure out if they have a moat, and um, yeah, like if if they have a moat as well as like you know, if they do have a moat, what what it is? Like I can tell that they're making money. I can tell that you know they're profitable and they're a pretty decently run company. Um, it seems that they const- they have the ability to think long term, although. I am questioning their incentive methodology and just the kind of the KPIs that they focus on. It just, I still have some kind of 
I think, questions. Like, there's nothing kind of remarkable that stands out about the company to say, to be kind of perfectly clear about it. So, yeah, I think it's more so that people I respect, like Lawrence Cunningham or Bluegrass Capital, are kind of, you know, they've kind of pointed me to the direction of, oh, look at Morningstar. And so that's kind of making me dig up for dig a little more into it to see like what have I missed but at the current offset nothing's too nothing yeah remarkable has kind of stood out for me at the moment just because whatever market they're in they're not really the dominant player in any of it from what I can gather so that makes me question their ability and it also makes me wonder then are they in emerging mode can they build some kind of sustainable like can they even build a competitive advantage somewhere I'm not sure so we'll see um, and that kind of led to learning about some other things that were kind of not related to investing, but at the same time a little more so. I think something that was fun that I learned about from the Economist podcast today was how diseases uh, actually impact how architecture is created. So something I learned is that how New York Central Park and extensive subway system that kind of leads to all the suburb boroughs uh, around the Manhattan area were the result of diseases from the past shaping the architecture of New York now because they wanted ways for people to spread out of cities because back then cities were considered to be very unsanitary and they that kind of ramped up apparently the development of the whole kind of public transit system so that people don't actually have to live in the cities. And something I found also interesting was about how modern European architecture, the kind of architecture that people equate to as having, you know, the minimalist, you know, white colored walls and large windows, the, you know, um, floor to ceiling kind of windows that a lot of modern condos kind of adopt and it's kind of known to be like the modern European style of architecture was actually adopted from the hospitals of places like Davos in Switzerland where a lot of people would go to try to recover but end up dying from tuberculosis back in the day. And yeah, so <laughs> the houses kind of were adopted from this kind of hospital, cemeterium um, environment during this whole tuberculosis outbreak. And it was because they wanted to create a living environment that would portray an image of something that's sterile and clean. And apparently one European architect uh, said, man is born in a hospital, dies in a hospital, and it only makes sense he should live in something resembling a hospital. So I found that to be quite grim. Um, it's pretty interesting to, to hear about that, though, because I think modern day people now kind of equate like minimal, like all this European architecture as, oh, it's about minimal, minimalism and you know, having less. And But I think to also be aware of how, you know, maybe there's some other elements that influence this and it's not always one particular message that runs the whole story. So I found that pretty fascinating. Um, so that was the May 11th Economist uh, podcast on, I think, the intelligence. And another podcast episode I listened to today was with, um, Tom Russo from Gardner Russo. He runs the Sempervic uh, Partnership. The you know anyone in the value investing community will know Tom Russo as like the amazing compounder, consumer brands investor. And if you don't know him, you should definitely check him out. Whatever interview you can get your hands on, you should listen to it. Uh, whatever of uh, his letters you can get your hands on, you should read it. I think he's definitely someone that I 
have grown to really like and admire over time and I just really enjoy his style of investing. And so I listened to kind of an older, I think it was an interview from last year. So Tom Russo's interview on the Capital Allocators podcast with Ted Seides. It was an episode on kind of Tom's look into Google. He doesn't go too deep into it. I was actually hoping he'd go deeper into it, but I think he talks about all the kind of um, general things about Google that you kind of know about when you're an investor. Just how, yeah, they have the whole YouTube brand strong, how, you know, they haven't even really made much of a dent in digital advertising and how they kind of, how Tom's kind of, eyes open to Google relatively, I guess, quote unquote, late in 2019, because all his consumer brand companies told him how, yeah, they can't live without using Google and Facebook. And so that kind of got him excited. And I think he kind of commented on how he prefers the Google management, like the alphabet management and kind of their capital allocation more so than Facebook's. And so he was more comfortable investing in Google, I think. And I think YouTube was part of his thesis as well. Um, because YouTube has kind of created this platform, which is, I guess, somewhat different from, um, well, I guess it's similar to Instagram per se. But yeah, and so, but Google is kind of much more broader and they're involved in other parts of the business as well. Like they have Android, they have the cloud business. And so I think, yeah, he kind of goes over kind of the basic stuff about Google. Um, I think the things that I found interesting, they kind of came near the end of the interview when I took notes on it was how, so this is a quote. He says, names and spaces have absolutely nothing to do with what we said about. We are buying long-term stakes in businesses that are that are, or are not superior based on people first, incentives second, and products brands third. It has nothing to do with names and spaces. And so this was what Tom talked about in criticism to how people refer to businesses as names and spaces, as in, you know, when... Yeah, even like I think I'm, I'm probably guilty of having done this too when you talk with other investors out You'll talk about what names are you interested in or what space are you looking at and it's in reference to businesses and you know various industries and it was kind of like tom russo's pet peeve but i think what was interesting was how he spoke about people were first um in considering long-term stakes in businesses and i never really thought tom actually cared so much about the people side um, i know he's a big advocate for founder run business or family-owned companies like he's a huge shareholder of Nestle, um, the Richemont brands. Um, I think a lot of the the, the spirits and alcohol brands are run by uh, family. Com- they're all family-owned. I think Brown Foreman, the owners of J- Jack Daniels. Whiskey is also family-owned, which is also, I think, owned by Tom Russo as well. And yeah, and so I've always known he's a big proponent of strong management who have the ability to suffer as he calls it and but i think this was the first time i kind of heard him talk about how he lays out what he would put put into in kind of not preference but priority orders of what's important like people first incentive second and then products and brand third which i totally agree with where you have the right people and then you incentivize them properly then they'll build the products and brand and make that happen so it was really cool to hear Tom Russo say that. It kind of makes me believe that I'm kind of going down the right path of thinking about investing in people. And something else he talked about was how he would ideally have cash flow conversion to be zero so that the company would be reinvesting everything that they are earning. And so he kind of doesn't like it when companies tout as having like, oh, well, we have really high cash flow conversion just because Wall Street likes it. 
And so influenced kind of by this interview, as well as the fact that I was kind of looking at Morningstar and I was feeling a little dejected um, about the company, a little disappointed from what I had found, um, got me thinking, well, well, maybe I should look at Google. Um, never really actually read Google's handling reports before, but uh, just on a very basic, you know, like IRR calculation, like just looking at free cash flow yield. I think when I looked at um, Morningstar, they were trading at something like a 4% cash flow yield. And in my memory, I think the enterprise value to free cash flow yield for Google on this day is close to like 3.5% or something. So yeah, like I, when I saw that, I was thinking, well, Morningstar is kind of growing its business organically at something like 8% annually, eight between 8 to 10%. Um, Google is growing at some 20% clip and they have way more cash on their balance sheet. Um, and the reason their free cash flow is only growing like something like 20% is just because, you know, they're not dedicating everything to advertising. They're just investing so much into other areas of the business. And so, you know, yeah, that got me thinking, well, given it's not that big of a difference in valuation, I feel like I'm more comfortable investing in Google just because they seem to dominate, you know, they own search and they own YouTube, so they own the video market for creators um they own the you know one of two smartphone platforms um and they have a lot of other things in the works right they still have a cloud business like everyone not everyone but a lot of people use gmail um you know yeah they have maps they kind of own travel as an industry segment really as well because all the otas are kind of enslaved to google's search algorithms so yeah, it's, you know, seems a little more obvious when given similar valuations to buy Google. But yeah, that got me thinking, well, let me look at the proxy statement for Google. And so I looked up the 2020 proxy statement and what I found was, let me see, uh, I think I can pull up my notes. Let's see. Right, so... I didn't read the entire proxy, but I was curious on how Sundar Pichai got gets compensated, and just curious on you know what incentive structure do they um, you know, impose on their CEO, and also just ownership. Because I, I don't know too much about Larry Page and Sergey Brin, but I know that they have a dual class structure, so I was curious. And it seem it turns out that Larry Page and Sergey Brin, effectively, both of them collectively control fifty two percent of the votes for Alphabet, the holding company for Google. And I think Eric Schmidt, the previous CEO, um, and he's currently just he's an advisor now. I think he controls something like eight to nine percent of the votes. So. Google still primarily owned by Larry and Sergey. Uh, I don't think they have any of the Class A, Class C shares that us regular schmoes, regular Joes can buy in the stock market. They, Sergey and Larry, own the B shares, and I think their salary is one dollar, and they don't take any bonus or any kind of other incentives related. But so then that got me curious. Okay, well, Sundar Pichai he runs uh, Alphabet and Google as the CEO. And so I was curious, how would they incentivize him? 
So it turns out, um, I think his salary was 650k uh, in 2019, but effective 2020, it'll be 2 million because he, I think, is going from just being CEO of Google to becoming CEO of Alphabet, the entire holding company as well. So they kind of determined that, okay, he's doing more work than before, so he'll should be compensated accordingly. You know, $2 million for to run one of the largest companies in the world that kind of dominates much of what the Western world really does seems fair given how many other like bank executives and people who don't run as important of a company get paid much more. So I'm like, okay, well, if I compare it to those, then yeah, I guess it's reasonable. But compared to like 650 from before, it's like, oh, do you really need $2 million and you know, pay 50% in tax? And I don't know. But regardless, I was more curious on the equity side, like the long-term equity compensation, because I think that just shows how, you know, incentives are really, whether aligned or not with shareholders, because I think Sundar got paid out some $270 million in equities, equity compensation in 2019. So I think out of the, oh, it's, it's, I wrote here $286 million. So out of the $286 million, I think $120 million were uh, just stock units granted stock units are practically just like options that just vest over three years on a quarterly basis nothing really there's nothing stopping them from vesting it seems um like they've it's been awarded and you just have to let time pass on it's just very like traditional stock option stuff so kind of disappointed that there isn't the performance element to it i was kind of hoping all of the equity would be performance oriented and so then, okay, well, what about the 160 remaining? Um, and so those are related to performance stock units. So I was like, okay, well, PSUs, what kind of methods are they using? And it seems that a good chunk of them are, they follow some kind of incentive scheme. And the incentive scheme that they use is, it's based on the total shareholder return. Uh, so the acronym's TSR is practically the stock price movement. And basically, he, uh, the composition works by, how should I say it? Um, I don't know if it's easier if I just read it off, but maybe it's hard to understand if you don't see the graph. But in essence, um, the performance is tied to Google's stock price moving in relation to the S&P 100. So it's there's kind of a payout curve where if the TSR percentile is, you know, if you're in the 25th percentile rank versus the S&P 100 in terms of the TSR, then you get paid a certain amount, like like 50% of your stock units get vested. And then if you hit the 50th percentile of the S&P 100, then 100% get vested. And then if you are 75, 75th percentile uh, in TSR rank versus the S&P 100, then 200% vest. And this is over, there are different tranches. So there's one that's like a two-year period. And then there's one that's like a three-year period. Overall, I was a little disappointed. I generally, like... In one way, I can understand that, yeah, you know, for investors, the way you want you generate earnings, I mean, you generate gains for yourself is, yeah, you need the stock price to go up. Yes, 100%. But I think a good part 
of a big part of a CEO's role is as a capital allocator. And when you, when you incentivize, you know, a huge chunk of the compensation is purely based on stock price movements, even if it's, you know, if they say like, oh, this is long-term because we look at two-year and three-year periods. It's like, well, that's not really long-term, truly, because something like a five to 10-year is really, truly long-term. Like they're talking about, oh, we want to make bets for five, 10, 20 years, but then why are you measuring everything on two to three-year periods for stock options? It just it just seems ludicrous in my mind. And maybe I'm just being too naive. Maybe I'm being too much of a realist. And But at the same time, like, well, you're giving this person $280 million worth of equity and yeah sure it's still equity so you know Sandra probably wants the stock price to do well long term and it's going to be hard for him to just you know divest of 286 million just right off the bat and it's not like he's just going to quit but I think you know the incentives you put in place drive a certain kind of behavior and one of the criticisms I think the market commonly has of Google is that they're not very good with capital allocation because you know, but people have been critics of the YouTube acquisition when you know Google paid a billion dollars for YouTube. People said this is insane, but look what YouTube is now, right? People would pay hundreds of billions for YouTube to just be a company on its own entirely and not even be part of Google. I'm sure there's plenty of investors who'd want to buy just YouTube. And so I guess it's hard to say that I can't, I, I personally can't say that Google is bad at capital allocation. I haven't really done enough work into it, but I know that's a criticism that Google gets in the open market um but it could also like so for me i would have liked to see some kind of incentive metric that utilizes a capital base like looking at return on cap you know, invested capital or return on capital employees some kind of roc metric would have been preferred um some kind of metric related to just the intrinsic value of the company not just what the market deems the value to be based on this total shareholder return and Something that's also pegged to the S and P one hundred. I'm not sure if that's good or bad necessarily. Like the S and P one hundred. I don't know what meaning that really provides. Alphabet is what something like the fourth largest or third largest company in the S and P one hundred, and I'm sure something like the top five six companies make up most of the S and P one hundred in terms of the market cap. So it. I don't know. It's I get. I guess it's kind of like saying, well, if the other big tech companies move their share price by X amount, then Alphabet should kind of make sure that they keep up with that to some degree. But I just don't see how this promotes, um, you know, just thinking like a long-term owner. So overall, I was pretty disappointed with the intensive scheme. I just expected something more from alphabet i just expected something more from larry and sergey to try to incentivize sundar i mean yeah like but i also understand that yeah you're running one of the most impactful companies in the world so you should get paid accordingly and i'm not really saying that the 286 million is outrageous like it's not like he's getting paid 286 million every year it's just 2019 was the big one but i would have liked to just see something where the incentives just were more aligned with shareholders for prudent capital allocation. But we will see. We'll see how things change up. And yeah, maybe when I actually do a full analysis in the company for Alphabet, maybe I'll go, oh, it doesn't matter. The 
Buzz model out trumped all that and I don't know we'll have to see but yeah that's kind of how the day was spent that was how all the kind of things I learned about today um also I think somewhat finalized my album artwork for the OMD daily podcast so hopefully all this episode will go out soon I'm looking forward to it I did spend a good chunk of time kind of hashing out the description and constant I don't know it's just one of those things where it's there's nothing there's no perfect answer but you just want to say the right things and sometimes it just comes up so textbook and i just hate it and so then i start doubting myself and i go okay well what what am i really trying to create what is it really about and honestly i'm just trying to create something where i can just talk to people every day where i can learn something new every day and just want to become a better investor and just find and invest in a way that i believe makes more sense and in a way that I think is different from what how other people do it and just learn things so that I can eventually work with entrepreneurs and kind of have this mix of investing in the public markets investing in managers but at the same time working with great entrepreneurs and so yes yeah, just trying to combine all my greed and desires into one kind of succinct description is sometimes a little challenging but it is how it is so yeah that's kind of been the entire gamut of the day and I hope this was somewhat interesting somewhat valuable added some kind of insight some cheap insight into your life um so yeah thanks a lot for tuning in and i hope to have you back on tomorrow take care